from Michigan Radio. This is It's Just Politics. I'm Zoe Clark. Gun bills are moving in the state. Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed gun safety legislation into law this week. Last Thursday, a six-month-old baby was shot and killed in Muskegon. Last Friday, a 16-year-old was shot and killed in Detroit. And a 23-year-old young man was shot and killed in Lansing. Gun violence is a scourge that is unique to this country, and that's why we are taking action. The bills deal with universal background checks and safe storage requirements. Meantime, the state house this week passed so-called extreme risk protection legislation, also known as red flag laws. Guns are the quickest and most efficient way to kill. Their proliferation and easy access make them the target and means for homicides and suicides. It's still a due process issue. So to me, when people have accusations made against them, they should be able to face their accuser. But how do they actually work? We'll ask that question in a few minutes. A judge has to rule on this case within about 24 hours of a petition being made. But first, Rick Pluta, co-host of It's Just Politics and senior capital correspondent of the Michigan Public Radio Network, is here. Hi, Rick. Hi, Zoe. So I want to start with this scene. Governor Gretchen Whitmer signing these first two gun bills the first gun bills of her administration. You were there, and it sounds like it was pretty powerful. Oh, it it certainly was. She signed them on the campus of Michigan State University. Uh, That's where the deadly shooting took place just two months ago. We don't have to live like this, and today we are showing we are not going to anymore. So as you can hear, the scene was jubilant. It was emotional. Democratic Senator Rosemary Baer, who represents Oxford, yelled, finally. So there was joy at this accomplishment, but it wasn't lost that so much of what made that moment possible was the outrage and the heartbreak following the Oxford and MSU shootings. And this was a big group of folks, too, who attended the signing. Mm-hmm. Sure. It was it was a packed room. The audience was filled with people from groups like Moms Demand Action, um, student organizations that uh, got activated after the uh, shootings. Uh, there were national figures from the uh, gun control movement there. And don't forget that all of this happened with the recent mass shootings in Kentucky and Tennessee as part of the emotional backdrop of the event. A lot of national attention is being made about the fact that Michigan is passing these bills. Should we think that maybe other states and maybe not just, you know, overwhelmingly blue states, but other states might look to Michigan either as a model or going, wow, look at this could be something that we could try to get some bipartisan support on and push forward. Oh, national figures were at the bill signing and giving credit to Governor Whitmer, giving credit to uh, legislative Democrats as sort of being trailblazers and showing the path for getting gun bills adopted in other states. You know, absolutely. We'll see how that plays out. But um, yeah, I mean, this is Michigan is getting some uh, national attention on um, gun safety and gun control legislation. Yeah. So the expansion of universal background checks and safe storage laws, these are bills that Democrats have long pushed for. But in the legislature, Democrats had been in the minority until this year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these bills have been long sought after by Democrats, by progressives, but they 
these bills never got floor votes, let alone hearings under previous Republican-controlled legislatures. But, you know, with the MSU shooting in February, Democrats made these bills their top priority. Another example of Democrats using their slim House and Senate majorities while they have them. So meantime, the same day that Whitmer signed these bills, the state House passed red flag laws. And in a minute, we're going to speak with a professor who studies how red flag laws actually work to prevent gun violence. But first, Rick, the House passed them, but it was a narrow vote. Yes, as most of these gun bills have been. But don't forget, Democrats have narrow majorities. However, um, with the universal background checks and safe storage uh, bills to keep unattended guns away from children, those have a lot more popular support. And you see that reflected in the legislature. Red flag, well, that's more problematic than uh, those other bills in some ways. A few Democrats, uh, like Republicans, have civil rights questions about taking guns from people who haven't been convicted of anything. Although we should point out that red flag is a civil action that is approved by a judge. It's not a criminal one, which goes through the criminal process. And so there is a process for judges to approve these these orders. Um, And the seizure is supposed to be temporary. It's only supposed to get guns out of a place where they might be abused by someone in, in the heat of a moment. And finally, as you've talked to lawmakers, particularly Democratic lawmakers on this issue, they say that this is not it, right? That this is the first package of gun bills, but expect to see more. Um, Yeah, this is laying the groundwork for other things. And these are the most difficult, controversial things. But, you know, we will be talking, especially as we get into the budget process, about things like mental health services, um, funding for gun safety programs, that uh, this is not the only thing that we are going to see uh, regarding gun safety in this session. Rick Pluta, Senior Capital Correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network. Thanks so much. Uh, You bet, Zoe. Okay, so red flag laws. We have been hearing a lot about them, but how do they actually work? What is the process and how can they save lives? April Zioli is associate professor at the University of Michigan's Institute for Firearm Injury Prevention. She's here now. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. Professor, can we just start really basic? What exactly are red flag laws? Red flag or extreme protection order laws are laws that allow for people who are in immediate danger of harming themselves or others to have their firearm rights temporarily suspended so that they don't have a gun while they're in this risky period. What do we know about how they work in actually reducing gun violence? Extremist protection orders are fairly new in the United States. Before 2015, only two states had them. So the research is still catching up. But studies have found that they're associated with reductions in firearm suicide. And I've been doing a six-state study of extremist protection orders, and we found that they've been used in cases of mass shooting threats, particularly school shooting threats. They've been used in cases of intimate partner violence and suicide risk. 
and a whole host of reasons that people might harm themselves or others. And we're still waiting on more research to determine effectiveness, but they look very promising. You've mentioned when someone is a harm to themselves or others, who determines that? Ultimately, a judge will determine whether someone is at risk of harming themselves or others. Often this starts, though, with a loved one or a law enforcement officer seeing signs that someone is risky. So someone may have threatened to kill someone else, or they may have written a suicide note that someone found. They've displayed that they are willing to use violence against themselves or others in some way. That's why they're called red flag laws, because there are red flags that they might use violence. So that person, whether it be a loved one or law enforcement, will fill out a petition and take it to a civil court judge. The judge reviews the evidence to decide whether it meets statutory standards and will either grant or deny the order. That's a process. And I think anyone who's been part of a court knows that courts take a while. And I think one of the things we also know when it comes to gun violence is that can happen very, very quickly. Yes. And because of that, there is a more immediate order that can be put in place that the legislation that Michigan voted on states that a judge has to rule on this case within about 24 hours of a petition being made. And then if they grant you the order, there might be a hearing a couple weeks later where the person who is under the order can argue against it, uh, can say why they don't think it's needed in their case, or don't think it's needed anymore in their case. And that you know, full hearing, the judge will again determine whether the order should be granted. It would seem that these proposals could put a significant burden on judges and the court system. How has this played out in other states? Are judges making individual decisions? Is it overwhelming courts? It does not appear to be overwhelming courts. So the states that have them, and there are 19 states and the District of Columbia that have been using these laws, it really varies from state to state and even county to county how often petitions for these extremist protection orders are made. You know, in some counties and states, there really aren't that many, whereas in others, for example, Broward County, Florida, where the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School took place, there are quite a few extremist protection order petitions. But we haven't heard that civil courts are overrun and, you know, can't keep up with these hearings. And in fact, that's one of the things that the Michigan legislation really tries to guard against. I mentioned there was a full hearing uh, where the respondent, the person under the order, you know, could come in and and argue against um, the extremist protection order. That hearing only takes place if the respondent indicates that they want it to take place. If the respondent doesn't want it to take place, it, it won't happen. And that original emergency or temporary order will continue on for about a year. 
We're speaking with April Zioli. She's associate professor at the University of Michigan's Institute for Firearm Injury Prevention. Another question that has been out there is who would be able to report a person as a threat to others or themselves, right? I I think there's questions about family and friends, sure. Um, But what about police or doctors, lawyers? Well, so it depends on the state. Under the Michigan legislation, physicians can petition for this extremist protection order, as can intimate partners and family members. In other states, those people can petition as well. Mostly it's law enforcement that are petitioning, even when other other people can petition. So often what happens is that someone calls law enforcement. Mm-hmm. You know, they've detected a risk. Maybe they're being you know, victimized by that person and it's an intimate partner violence situation. Or you know, maybe a mother detects that you know her son is suicidal, but law enforcement is called. And after you know, some amount of investigation, law enforcement makes the decision whether or not to petition. One of the arguments we've heard from the Republican side of the aisle is that the law could be weaponized in relationships. For instance, a person could go to court and say that their significant other is dangerous in order to punish them by having their firearms removed. Is that a reasonable consideration from what you've just described to us earlier? We have not seen that happen. We have not seen that happen with domestic violence restraining orders or what we call personal protection orders here in Michigan. We've not seen it with criminal complaints of domestic violence, and we've not seen it thus far with extremist protection orders. There is always this specter of the vengeful woman that people bring up, that they think that women go about making these things up all the time because they're angry. And there's simply no evidence that that happens in any widespread way. Another concern we heard uh, this time from the Democratic side of the aisle is that there could be prejudice that could see communities of color or people with specific diagnoses disproportionately targeted in court over this. Is that a reasonable concern? That is always a reasonable concern whenever you're talking about you know, law enforcement and you know, at least temporarily depriving someone of you know, one of their rights. Um, that being said, that's also not something we've seen, at least for minoritized individuals. I don't think research has looked into mental health concerns around this yet, but um, We don't see that more Black individuals, for example, are under these extremist protection orders. In fact, what we see is that it's pretty proportionate to um, their percentage in the population as to uh, the proportion of Black people who are under extremist protection orders in various states, which is a little concerning because... Black people are disproportionately victims of gun violence. The highest risk group is Black males who are young, ages 14 to 44, I believe. And to save their lives, we might need more extremist protection orders in this population. Extremist protection orders are a life-saving tool. Therefore, they need to be used 
where the lives need to be saved. I guess that leads to my next and my final question for you. This is something you research, right? This literally is your day job. Do the bills that the legislature has been considering and passing and that the governor has just signed, do they go far enough to scale back the gun violence that we see in society today? Yeah, this literally is my day job. And um, each one of these is a great step forward. But we don't only need laws. We need actual implementation of the laws. For example, we need to make sure that people are using extremist protection orders. If a law is passed and no one petitions for one, then it's not going to save any lives. We also need community violence prevention. These laws are about doing what they can at a policy level. And a policy level will get you somewhere. It'll only get you so far. Just like working in a community will get you somewhere, but it will only get you so so far. We need a lot of different approaches to solve the problem of gun violence in Michigan. This is a great step forward, but there's always more we can do. That's April Zioli, associate professor at the University of Michigan's Institute for Firearm Injury Prevention. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you. politics for today. A reminder that you can find It's Just Politics, not just on the radio and not just Fridays. Subscribe to the It's Just Politics wherever you get your podcasts from and listen whenever you want. I am Zoe Clark. Hope you have a wonderful, warm weekend. Let's talk again next Friday.